We started a new series uh, messages uh, a couple of weeks ago looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And we're looking at these words to try to figure out how they uh, reset our lives and reset our hearts and reset all the components of our life because these words are kind of a radical vision, a dream, God's dream for how the world should be. So let's turn to those words again. So we're in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 27 to 37 today. Matthew 5, 27 to 37. This is Jesus preaching what is probably the most famous sermon in the world. And here's this little section starting with verse 27. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, then gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said that, To the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. And all you need to do is simply say yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. How would you finish this sentence? Marriage is. What's the first word that comes to your mind or phrase? Marriage is. One caught my eye this week. Marriage is a workshop. He works, she shops. (laughs) One unnamed staff member on our staff said this week, marriage is a ball and chain. Of course, he was talking about somebody else. (laughs) Marriage is when someone else's happiness is your happiness. That sounds like a wedding toast, doesn't it? All optimistic. One great philosopher, French philosopher, said, Marriage is like a cage. The birds outside are desperate to get in, and those inside are equally desperate to get out. Quotes about marriage, I noticed, uh, often fall into two main categories. Marriage is heaven, like heaven on earth, or marriage is hell. Seemed like they all were kind of on one end of the spectrum or another, except for Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln said, marriage is neither heaven nor hell, it's purgatory. (laughs) I'm not sure if that's any better. What's your attitude about marriage? I think that how a person finishes the sentence, marriage is, might tell us a lot about his or her attitude. And I'm guessing that even within the group we have assembled here today, our attitudes are probably quite diverse. And I have a little bit of a fear about this message today because I think it's really tricky to talk about marriage to a large group. 
because I know there's a diversity of opinions, a diversity of experiences, a diversity of expectations, and I'm not sure exactly what to do with all of that. So I was trying to find a starting point that we could agree on. How about this? Would you agree that marriage is under assault? However you might define that. Marriage is under assault. Some marriages suffered tragedies like affairs and abuse and contempt and divorce. Other marriages endure lifelessness that comes more from boredom or indifference or loneliness or isolation. Many husbands and wives are exhausted by the frantic pace required to honor all the demands in their life. They're pulled by family and work and church and community and parents and friends and neighbors and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this leaves families, especially spouses, with conflicting priorities. And so relationships can grow distant and cold just from the rush and the hurry. Passion is lost. These marriages don't explode like into a ball of fire. They just kind of slowly cool off, slowly erode. And while I know that marriages are under assault, and I hear this from a lot of people in lots of places, I'd never hear this at the beginning of marriage. Everybody starts their marriage with a really high expectation, with really lofty ideals. Our wedding days are filled with optimism and romance. We think this is going to be the one. It's going to be awesome. We have high hopes that we will be wildly successful. I do a lot of premarital counseling, and I always ask couples at the beginning of this process, tell me what success looks like. And they're always pretty good about giving me kind of a short list of things that they think will make their marriage successful, kind of what they're shooting at. A lot of it has to do with kind of their happiness and fulfillment and things like that. Nobody at that point in the counseling has ever stopped me and said, well, Pastor Kent, we don't really plan to be successful. No one's ever said that. They always have some ideal about what it will look like when they're successful. So even with this attack on marriages, they believe they're the ones who are going to make it. They're going to be strong, which is interesting because the statistics about marriage and divorce are still fairly similar as they have been for decades. It's about 50%. Socrates uh, quoted something about marriage once. He said this, By all means, marry. If you get a good wife, you'll be happy. If you get a bad one, you'll be a philosopher. (laughs) And Socrates was a philosopher. His wife's name was Exanthropy, and she was known to be a very argumentative, angry person. He actually married her because he wanted someone to argue with. And uh, she was so cantankerous that one time she poured the contents of a chamber pot on his head. (laughs) Successful? (laughs) Marriage is. Marriage is a joke. Marriage is a tragedy. Marriage is a pain. Marriage is a waste of time. Marriage is a disappointment. Marriage is a gift. How do you finish that sentence? Marriage is. Jesus actually does not have a whole lot to say to us specifically about marriage. He gets at it a few different times and usually through the back door by talking about adultery and divorce. And that's the case in the passage we just read today. The way that we're going to get at this idea of resetting our marriages is by looking at, well, what does Jesus say about adultery and divorce? So Jesus is 
uh, remember, giving us his dream for God's uh, kingdom, uh, dream for humanity. If, if everything went right in our life, this is what it could look like. This is the kind of dream that he's painting in this sermon, what God's kingdom would look like when it comes in all of its fullness. And this little section of Scripture we're in right now is in the format of Jesus says, well, you've heard this, but I tell you this. And this pattern kind of gets repeated throughout this, almost this whole chapter. You have heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, they've already committed adultery. You have heard it said that anyone who divorces his wife must get a certificate of divorce, but I tell you that anyone who divorces commits adultery. You have heard it said, uh, be careful how you make your oaths. I say, don't make oaths. This is the kind of teaching that Jesus is involved in. He's talking about the law here and how the law fits into this picture of God's kingdom. You've heard the law this way, but Jesus says, I'm going to tell you it this way. Now, have you ever thought about the law as a target? It's like something you have to aim at. Um, And think of it this way. The people of God originally got 10 targets. You remember what they were called? The Ten Commandments, okay? So there's ten things that they're supposed to do. If you hit all ten of these things, then you're doing pretty good. No other gods but God, no idols, no swearing, remember the Sabbath day, honor your mom and dad, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lying, and no coveting. Ten targets. If you hit all ten of those, perfect. Of course, even with just ten targets, the people of God immediately started to, like, want some clarification, Let's kind of understand what you mean by this. So, for example, can I kill somebody without murdering them? Well, maybe. So then they have to start to write in some loopholes and some caveats and explanations. Well, don't kill anybody in this way. So the Ten Commandments are followed by 27 chapters of do's and don'ts in Leviticus. So you start with 10 targets, and pretty soon you've got 27 chapters elaborating on those 10. And then you get to the book of... Uh, Deuteronomy, and there's 34 more chapters that elaborate on all kinds of things, things you believe, things you behave, diet, customs, attitudes, all this stuff. It all starts to get legislated, so we start to get all these targets, and that actually evolved for the Jewish people into about 6,200 pages of law that they had to keep. And then right after that, the occupation of lawyer was born. (laughs) I'm serious. They had this category of people who were called experts in the law. And they would read all of these things, started from those 10 targets into all these pages of law, and then they would try to interpret and to try to explain what these things mean and how you would actually live them out. How would you apply it in your daily life? So you're wondering what this has to do with marriage. Well, two targets that get fiddled with almost immediately and often are the targets no adultery and no divorce. The people of God immediately like, "Eh, what do you mean by that? They want to know. So the experts in the law start to go at it. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, Moses kind of opens the floodgate. This is how Deuteronomy chapter 24 begins. Moses says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds finds in her something indecent and he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her, then he can send her from his house. So he just seemed to give a loophole, right? And most people understand that the loophole that Moses was talking about here was um, sexual impurity, infidelity. Um, Then you had a reason to grounds for divorce. 
But the experts in the law, the lawyers, got a hold of this, and they thought about all the possibilities that this thing creates, and they started to come up with a whole bunch of opportunities for divorce. And in fact, by the day of Jesus, they had a whole list of exclusions of other reasons why you might be able to give your wife a certificate of divorce. And the one that I found the most interesting was this. Uh, Grounds for divorce in Jesus' day was if your wife burned your toast. So they actually interpreted this little law of Moses this way. This is actually a translation from the message. It's one place where I think he did a terrible job of translating it. But Eugene Peterson says... This law was actually interpreted that if a man marries a woman and then it happens that he no longer likes her because he has found something wrong with her, he may give her a divorce. And it seems to me that marriage has been under assault ever since Deuteronomy chapter 24. Because we are really good as people at finding things wrong with our spouses, aren't we? I mean, I know for some of you this is maybe a hard task, but if you set your mind to it, do you think you could come up with a short list of things that were wrong with your spouse? And then if we take a real liberal interpretation of Moses in Deuteronomy 24, well, if you're not happy with her anymore, if you're not happy with him anymore, well, that's it. It seems to me that this is kind of a common problem that has been kind of exacerbated in our culture, in our current day and age when finding something wrong with our spouse seems to just have been elevated to a whole new level. And uh, people who study this stuff have written some really great things. This is from Tim Keller, who wrote a really excellent book on marriage. Uh, It's called uh, Understanding Marriage. And if you want to go deeper, he would be a great source for this. But he says, he explains this kind of like finding fault attitude. Today we stay connected to people only so long as they are meeting our particular needs at a cost that's acceptable to us. I thought that was an interesting way to put it. So I'll put up with your fault or your wrongdoing, the thing I don't like about you, just as long as it's okay for me. As soon as it crosses a certain line, then I'll say no longer. When we cease to make a profit, that is, when the relationship appears to require more love and affirmation from us than we are getting back, uh, Keller says, then we cut our losses and we end the relationship. So marriage is, in that view, a commodity that we buy or buy into only as long as it's good for us, as long as it gives us some return. In Mark 10, I think Jesus actually explains why people are looking for these loopholes. Mark 10 starts out this way. Some Pharisees came and they tested Jesus by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So they've been talking to the experts of the law. They've been maybe thinking about Deuteronomy 24 and all the reasons why they might not. So they asked Jesus, is there any reason? Give us some grounds for this. And Jesus replied, what did Moses say? And they answered correctly, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. They don't give the reasons why. They just say Moses permitted it. And then Jesus says, Mark 10, verse 5, well, it was because your hearts are hard. That's why Moses wrote this law. But I say to you, At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and unite to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus doesn't blame Moses or the lawyers or the rabbis for the loopholes that have been created. He actually blames all of us because our hearts are hard. 
And so because our hearts are hard, we sometimes need accommodation. We've got to have a loophole to get out of commitments that we don't like anymore, that we don't want to keep. And Jesus says, I don't want anything to do with that. This is what I hear Jesus saying about marriage. No loopholes, no adultery, no divorce. Even for the hard-hearted. Do any of you here remember the show Love Connection? Admit it if you ever watched it, okay. Chuck Woolery was the host of this, and they would send people out on dates, and then they would come back and talk about it, if you remember that. So here is one guy coming back from a date on Love Connection. Chuck's asking about it, and this is the contestant's comment. Well, the date started out great. She opened the door, and she looked fantastic. Beautiful face, great body, nice smile. Everything was going fine until she turned around. And then there was an ominous pause, and the guy shook his head. Chuck, he said sadly, she had dirty elbows. And that was that. And the guy went through the rest of the date, but he knew from the moment he saw those dirty elbows, there was no way that this thing could last. Does this guy have a hard heart or what? And you might think, you know, come on, get some couples therapy, maybe get some soap and a washcloth. You could take care of this, right? But it wouldn't matter because he would just find something else wrong with her. Because that's what hard hearts do. They just find loopholes and excuses and justifications. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and then he can send her from his house. That's the way they were interpreting the law. And Jesus says, no, no adultery, no divorce, no loopholes. Reset um, your attitude about marriage. And as I'm reading these things, I'm recognizing I need to reset my attitude about marriage. I can sometimes make marriage kind of a joking matter or, or wonder about loopholes in marriage. What if we reset our view of marriage to say that marriage is not a joke, it's not a tragedy, it's not a pain, it's not a waste of time. Marriage is a gift. And in fact, I'm going to expand on that. Marriage is the hard, glorious, mysterious gift of two imperfect people who don't give up on each other. Marriage is hard because we're hard-hearted people. All of us. I mean, so there's no perfect husbands and there's no perfect wives. There's no perfect marriages, right? Because we're all hard-hearted. J.R. made a really great observation last week when he was talking about how much more demanding the Sermon on the Mount is than the Ten Commandments. Because like, if you just had ten targets, that's great, but then Jesus takes these targets and he just expands them so that they're like huge. So you've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I tell you, anyone who's angry with their brother or sister, they've already committed murder. So it's like, yeah, well, I can hit that target of no murder pretty easy, right? Usually. But not, no anger? Are you kidding me? Um, you've heard it said, you know, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at another person lustfully, you've already committed adultery. Who can, who can do that? Marriage is hard because we have hard hearts. Marriage is two sinful people committed to stay together even though they can't be perfect. That's, that's marriage. 
I find that one of the interesting assaults on marriage today is unmarried couples living together. And I know this is a kind of a tough topic, but the current data on this is kind of interesting to me. It says that uh, at any given time, about one quarter of single people in America today are living together outside of marriage, one-fourth. And about half of all people under the age of 40 will have lived with somebody without being married at some point. So this is a pretty big deal, and this is actually a huge change from the past. And my understanding of the reason for doing this is because living together is like a test drive. We're going to, like, try it out and see. Uh, I want to find out if we're compatible, and so let's explore this, and one of the best ways would probably be to live together and do that. So then I will be more likely to choose my spouse wisely. That's the, I think that's the thinking or the understanding in living together. The facts, however, are actually quite shocking about cohabitation because people who live together and then get married are actually more likely to get divorced. The stats are a- absolutely clear about that. So it doesn't actually help you stay married if that's your goal. And that's not the most disturbing thing to me. Actually, the most disturbing thing about it is that people who actually live together never get to the deeper love and intimacy that they're looking for. Because as long as you're in a test drive, you have to put your best foot forward. You can never really be who you really are. You can never let your mask off completely. You can never expose yourself completely to the person that you're living with. Because it's a test drive. And if they see something they don't like, well, test drive's over. This is different than marriage. Because marriage is the commitment that says, I'm going to live with somebody. And I'm going to let them see everything about who I really am. And they're going to stay committed to me anyway. The person I'm living with is going to show me everything about who she is and let me see who she really is. And no matter what I see, I'm going to stay committed to living with her anyway. That's what makes marriage so glorious. Um, One of the best gifts that Mary gives to me every day is she says, I'm going to know exactly who you are, Kent. And no matter what I find out about you, I'm never going to leave you. And I tell her the same thing. That's what the commitment we make in marriage. That is a glorious thing. Marriage is a hard, glorious, mysterious gift of two imperfect people who commit to say they're going to live together and never give up on each other. That's marriage. One more quote from Tim Keller, which really struck home with me. He said this, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. So if you love me but you don't really know me, so what difference does that make? To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. I'm afraid that if you really knew who I was, you'd say, I don't love you anymore. But to be fully known and truly loved, well, that's a lot like being loved by God. And that's the commitment we make in marriage. To be fully known and truly loved is a glorious thing. And with that kind of love, then we can let people see us at our worst and know all of our flaws and all of our weaknesses, and we know they're still going to be committed to us. And this all takes time. It's all hard. It's all kind of a mystery how it gets worked out. I I have a lot more to say about that, but I'm kind of out of time. So I just want to kind of make this offer. If this idea about resetting your marriage is intriguing to you, 
I want to invite you to consider two things. First of all, I want to invite you as a couple to get immersed in the Sermon on the Mount. Read it together. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Just read through these chapters together. Read them out loud. Share thoughts and discussions. And then just keep working through it over the next several weeks as we continue this journey. But do it as a couple. Immersed in the Sermon on the Mount. And the second thing is, if, if you're just curious about what that might mean and there's something maybe percolating in your mind about that, there's a little uh, checkbox on the tear-off on the bulletin which says something like, I'm curious about resetting my marriage or I'm interested in this. Checking that box is absolutely no obligation because I have no idea what will come from that. But I'd like to chat with anybody who's curious about this and see if there might be some things, maybe a, a cell group about marriage or maybe some opportunities for us to explore deeper what it means to be uh, truly um, uh, married and committed in that way. So a couple of responses for you. Jesus is really quick to tell us at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that he, he did not come to contradict the law. He actually came to fulfill the law. He came to give the law kind of a fresh perspective to reset our thinking. And one of the ways that it resets my thinking is this. Instead of living with constant anxiety about the targets that we're called to hit and our inability to hit those targets, Jesus says, I'm going to stay with you no matter what. I'm going to stay with you for who you are right now, even if you can't hit all those targets. That's Jesus' commitment to us. And one of the best ways for me to experience the reality of that truth in a practical way is in marriage. Because marriage is a hard, glorious, mysterious gift of two imperfect people who say, I'm willing to stay with you forever. That's what marriage is. Lord God, we give you thanks for this day and we praise you for the truth of your word, for your Holy Spirit who's right now busy buzzing around this room, uh, challenging each of us. And so we ask that you'll continue the good work that you've started in Jesus' name.